1: I want to bring in to Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. What are you seeing uh, with respect to ETF flows and how instructive are they with respect to uh, just how panicked investors have gotten?
2: Uh, yeah, so I'm seeing a lot of red, <laughs> naturally. Um, I You know, maybe you could call it a bloodbath in terms of SPY. SPY has lost about $23 billion in a week, um, you know, in a couple days of $8 billion. So what this tells me is, a lot of this sort of uh, trading crowd, the hot money, as I call it, is really spooked. And SPY took in about $25 billion in January, which helped ETF flows go bonkers in the, on the inside. But when the sell-off started, SPY got hit hard as usual. Um, the, what I look for is deeper than SPY. What are the allocators doing? And that's why I look for IVV. IVV is the cheap version that advisors love right, of the, the S&P 500 ETFs. And it's starting to see a little trickle of red. It, seen, it saw inflows on, on Monday, believe it or not, and it is like a machine of inflows. But even it is starting to see a little red. And to me, that's almost more um, – would make me more nervous is when you see something like that uh, or Vanguard ETS start to see outflows. That is a – that's a whole bigger issue because is use like, like a futures contract for a lot of people. They go in and out all the time. It's like a hotel. But when you see it on the more buy and hold ETFs, I think it's a little more concerning.
1: Oh, so, Dave, come on in here, because I'm wondering, in you, are there other gauges of flows that sort of indicate whether or not uh, there is mass selling or whether this is just uh, sort of around the edges, macro bets? I mean, there's a difference.
3: Yeah, there is. And certainly there are plenty of numbers around that point in that direction. Bank of America Merrill Lynch had their weekly update out today. You know, they're talking about... A th- billion dollar outflow from equity funds now they're relying i think on data from epfr to do that uh and they're talking about half a billion dollars coming out of gold which is particularly interesting because let's face it you know when you've seen these sort of upheaval that markets uh, in, in have gone through in the past especially when you look at stocks i mean people have tended to run to areas where they see relative safety and gold has been among them And gold's been down this week, which is really saying something about how people are looking at the precious metal. And you're seeing outflows on top of that. And I'll just point out uh, that they tracked uh, $4 billion going into bonds. So even with the higher yields that we're seeing, uh, it it hasn't really deterred investors from sort of moving money in there. Because remember, those higher yields mean uh, bonds have been falling in value.
0: Eric, can you explain the technical process that takes place during the trading day that causes most screens to light up like Christmas trees at the end of trading and the relationship between exchange-traded funds and their positions?
2: Uh, Well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you have a lot of trading going on, um, and some ETFs have to rebalance. Um, In that whole horrible VIX situation that happened earlier this week, uh, that's where a lot of that happened on, on the rebalance. But uh, stock ETFs are – they don't own all that much, and they don't rebalance uh, – in, in, uh, they rebalance quarterly. So it's – the VIX ones rebalance daily. So um, it's, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I just think you have a lot of trading at the end of the day across the board. One thing I just want to comment on what Dave just said and gold, which I find fascinating, is you know gold is zero correlation to the market, not negative or inverse. And so it it, it 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 like just does its thing, it marches to the beat of its own drummer. And it was going up a lot during uh, the past year, even when stocks were rallying. And now you have the opposite, where we are seeing flows that I think also contributes to nervous investors is H- SHV, the one to three month Treasury ETF, and Bill. I mean, these are the shortest of this. This is a mattress, basically. Those two funds have taken in some money. They're rarely on the top ten list than they are uh, yesterday. And TLT saw some money. So I do think treasuries are where most people go when it's really panic. Gold is a little more performance-based.
1: That's really fascinating to me, and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Uh, And This morning I was thinking, you know, if everything reprices down, that's awesome for for true bond investors because that means you can actually buy stuff with higher yields. I mean, it's like this is a good thing if you are sort of continuing to rotate money in. So all of a sudden cash might start paying. Fascinating. Dave Wilson. Bloomberg Sacks editor uh, columnist and blocker at M live go on the Bloomberg thank you so much Eric Balchunas, thank you so much for joining a senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg intelligence well it seems like the lessons learned are of Dubious quality. Right now, I'm just looking at one of the funds, uh, the short volatility uh, funds that blew up or lost a lot of its value in the recent turmoil. Well, people are pouring money back in. Here to talk about it is Nick Colas, co-founder of Data Trek Research LLC, which is based in New York. Also a Bloomberg Profit. Nick, what's going on here? Have people just not learned their lesson?
4: Uh, The short answer is no, they apparently have not. Uh, The longer answer is, I guess, you know, if you liked shorting volatility at 10, you got to love shorting volatility at 30 on the VIX. And so you're right, money has just poured back into this fund. Obviously, the XIV went away or is closing, so there's fewer funds in which to focus this money, and SVXY is clearly getting the benefit. Um, But, you know, it It worked for a few minutes this morning, at least. Uh, SVXY was up uh, north of 10%.
1: We're talking about the ProShares short VIX uh, short term futures fund, SVX why. So what are you looking at? Is this really a, really just a purely technical driven sell-off in the stock market due to a number of different uh, factors that will just sort of stop at some point and everybody will go back about their business? Or is there something more here?
4: No, there's probably something more here. It's a, it's a combination of two factors. The first is obviously fundamental and where are where is inflation going this year? Where are long-term interest rates going this year? And what effect does that have on valuation? We started to see that discussion shape up just two weeks ago. And then, we kind of had it squared or cubed when we saw the inverse volatility funds blow up, and that became more of a market structure issue, but the combination's obviously been very damaging. And the one thing I'd say is you know, the VIX is often a good indicator of fear, but it's not a great indicator of market bottoms. If you look back at prior cycles, when the VIX bottoms, you've got to wait a month or two or three uh, before the market actually turns. So it's the direction of the VIX that actually matters to stocks more than just raw fear. So too late to sell, too early to buy. Yes, that was the way we headed off our client note last night, and that's very much the way it feels. All right, and when it does become time to buy...
0: Any particular areas you'd be focused on?
4: Yeah, technology and financials, two areas that we think do definitely still hold up. The one thing I'm really waiting for in terms of a market flush is technology to really sell off. I mean, tech has held up extremely well in a rising rate environment, and there's no reason why it should. High PE stocks should suffer as interest rates rise, and they really haven't. So that, for me, will be the sign of a bottom, but also a good entry point.
1: So what do you look at every day as kind of, a key leading indicator as to how equity markets are going to behave.
4: The one thing I look at, which I don't see a lot of other people looking at yet, is something very simple, Google Trends, which is a free tool online that allows you to see how many people are searching for a given term, and in this case, the term stock market is a very useful term because it tells you how much retail is paying attention to the current market volatility. In particular, it tells you how you might open the next day. So for example, yesterday, we didn't get anywhere near the amount of attention on the stock market from Google searches that we did back on Monday, less than half, actually, which told me that retail, for whatever reason, was not tuned into the market coming down yesterday. And sure enough, we had a very good open. What I do fear is that as you see market turmoil continue, those numbers will go higher and higher, and retail will eventually sell, and that traditionally is what creates the bottom.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you deploy capital at a time when perhaps you believe that the market is near a bottom? And I'm talking about not being a hero here.
4: Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'll say is I've been in this business 30 years, and I've had good friends get fired at the bottom of every cycle because they thought they knew better than the market. So my key takeaway is... You're right. Don't be a hero. Allocate capital very sparsely as markets go through these churn phases and downward moves. Because remember that capital allocated anywhere near a bottom is very high velocity capital. And it can really help or it can kill you. So the key takeaway is be extremely careful. Do not try to time a bottom. Edge into positions over time. Take off risk if you're overexposed and live for the long term.
1: So if your sense is that retail investors are not the ones panicking right now, who is? I mean other than the, you know, sort of short Vix funds. Uh we did see the biggest ever weekly withdrawal from US equity funds. Who is pulling their money?
4: I think it is basically everybody. I mean retail <laughs> is definitely right. definitely pulling some of it, um but it is also hedge funds, RIA manage money, financial advisor managed money. It's everybody that got way too exposed to risk in the first part of the year uh, and basically got caught off sides and has to reduce risk. So
0: if you are a uh, veteran of markets, can you share with us the maybe behavioral characteristics or the things you do that will mitigate that kind of emotional response to when things are not going the way you want, I keep thinking of Phil Fisher, a uh, longtime, you know uh, expert in the world of bonds, and he would always say that you know when you see market turmoil, go out to the movies because that keeps you away from the desire to keep doing something. Sometimes the idea is just step away.
4: Stepping away is excellent advice, and I'll tell you a little story. Many years ago, I worked for Stevie Cohen, from whom I learned a tremendous amount, and when things weren't going his way, he would ask his wife to bring his kids in for lunch, and he would just take an hour, hour and a half break, sit in the cafeteria downstairs, and have lunch with his kids and his family. And that, I got the sense that that really kind of recentered him and took him away from the screen, even though he was obviously a very active trader. So I have seen that process work in the past with very successful people.
1: I'm trying to understand the dynamic. What is driving the selling right now? I mean, you say everyone, and I understand that people got overexposed, but uh, there really is not that much. I mean, there was one unexpectedly good payrolls number. After that, what is it?
4: Yeah, so here's the thing. The narrative around inflation has been floating around for the better part of a year. The narrative around central banks pulling back quantitative uh, easing and doing quantitative tidings has been around for well over a year. And since literacy rates are so high in the U.S., I think we all assume that people understood those topics. But... We, everybody had this nagging feeling like there was going to be a reckoning. And so while there was capital coming into the market, it wasn't comfortable capital. It wasn't confident capital. It was capital that was there because everybody else was there. And you know, like all the best parties and nightclubs, when they start to clear out, they clear out really fast. And when they turn on the
0: lights, it's not pretty.
4: No, you never want to be there when the, turn, the lights get turned on.
0: All right. Who do you think is most at risk right now?
4: In terms of equities or yeah. in terms of investors? Well, either way. So in terms of equities, tech is code the most exposed. I mean, I can't reiterate that enough. This is supposed to be a higher than one beta group. It has huge valuations, and you can extend that all the way into venture capital. If we continue to see market turmoil, venture capital is going to have a really tough time getting IPOs out the door, getting deals done, and you're going to see a lot of down rounds. That's the biggest area. In terms of investors, I worry that investors that have come in in the past five years, younger investors, millennial investors who've never seen a down market, they're going to be brave for a little while, but you know it's always that new money that creates the bottom. And they will do it just like every other generation has done it. Thanks very much for sharing your insight and your uh, experience. Nick Colas, co-founder of
0: Datatrek Research. And I uh, want to congratulate you on the creation of Datatrek Research, and uh, your new company. Now let's get informed about the world of logistics and shipping. We have Lee Klaskow. He is our senior transport logistics and shipping analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Lee, always a pleasure. Uh, Tell us about Amazon. Is Amazon really a threat to FedEx and UPS? Uh,
5: A threat might be a little overkill, maybe on the margin. Um, They could... You know, take some share uh, away from uh, FedEx and UPS, but uh, longer term, we don't see it as a systemic risk uh, to uh, the parcel industry. Uh, there was an announcement today um, uh, following a report in the Wall Street Journal uh, that, note that said that Amazon was going to do a parcel deliver delivery in the LA area um, for people and uh, companies that are not on Amazon's network. Um, some might view this as competition for uh, UPS and FedEx, and some also might view it as Uh, Amazon looking for ways to get more companies into their fulfillment uh, by Amazon program.
1: How expensive is this type of program that Amazon is proposing?
5: Well that's a great question. Um, There's really no answer because they're not throwing much money at this, at least as it seems, and it looks like they're looking to do an asset light model, meaning that they're not gonna own the trucks and the drivers. Um, They'll uh, outsource that that type of, of work and where they'll do the sorting um, so it, it's really uh, unclear on you know what the cost would be for them because I would assume that they're going to leverage their current uh, facilities that they have for their for their, uh, for their fulfillment businesses um, and just uh, kind of uh, deliver deliver out of there so it, it's it's going to cost People, but you're also going to have more technology. You're going to have to have relationships with these uh, uh, contracted drivers, and you need, you know, a steady flow of drivers. And and, and, and with the labor market tightening, um, that's probably not going to be. Uh, it's probably going to be easier said than done. I would this,
1: say. could this end up being beneficial for, say, FedEx and UPS? Because at some point, Amazon may have to come back to them and lease their drivers and their trucks.
5: Yeah, and that's that's a great question. I mean, you know, our 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 uh, kind of thought is that you know, uh, Amazon is is a two and a half percent, call it, of UPS's sales, uh, maybe two percent um, of their sales, and it's less than one percent of FedEx. So they're not. They're, they're a huge customer of both FedEx and UPS but if Amazon went away tomorrow it wouldn't be you know the end of the world for those companies because of the growth of e-commerce but but Amazon you know needs to, to kind of tread lightly here because you, you know if they if FedEx and UPS see that Amazon is going head-to-head with them they might not You know, want to necessarily carry their products during the peak season, which, you know, Amazon really needs the parcel industry for help uh, when it comes to that. They can't just rely on the U.S. Postal Service.
0: Lee, just to put this into context, I understand that FedEx operates about 650 aircraft and UPS has a fleet of over 240 aircraft. That's pretty substantial. That's not something you can just put together in a week.
5: Right. And, you know, Amazon has been in the news with, with you know, leasing of a bunch of aircrafts. And, you know, that's really more for their line haul business. So meaning that, you know, they're willing to take more of the logistics in-house, which is completely normal for a retailer or a consumer products company. You know, Walmart and PepsiCo, for example, have the largest trucking fleets uh, in the United States, you know, larger than many public trucking companies. Um, So that's kind of a normal uh, part of their business. You know, they, they want to rely as as less as they possibly can on the outside world for their uh, supply chain, um, and then leverage the the great networks that FedEx and UPS have built over the decades, uh, and in UPS's uh, case over 100 years, um, to, uh, uh, to deliver packages for the final, final mile, and, and maybe a little longer than that as well.
1: Lee, real quick, do you have a sense of timing with this type of program?
5: Timing of the what program?
1: Of of when Amazon could could roll this kind of thing out. Oh,
5: it's good. I mean, we're talking, they're just opening it in in, in L.A., uh, so it's one city. Uh, It's going to take probably a year to really be fully ramped up uh, to to cover a a city of that large. uh, And we'll see, you know, where the other pilot programs go from there. Um, And if if they're really successful at at, at kind of migrating more uh, retailers onto their fulfillment platform.
1: Lee Clasgow, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Uh, you. Lee Clasgow, Senior Transport Logistics and Shipping Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. many popular narratives about this week's sell-off in U.S. equities. Among them, jitters, concerns over the deepening U.S. deficit. But is this really, truly what's behind the scenes going on here? Ward McCarthy joins us right now. He's chief financial economist at Jeffries Co. in New York. Uh, Ward, thank you so much for being with us. So about this deepening deficit, how much is that what's behind all of the activity
6: this week? I think it's part of the uh, a big picture that is changing in material ways from what we've had for a number of years here uh what we're seeing is that monetary policy accommodation is being withdrawn. It's being replaced with uh, fiscal accommodation to try to support the economy. But one of the the consequences of both the fiscal accommodation and the withdrawal of monetary accommodation is that the Treasury is going to have to borrow a whole lot more money. We estimate in fiscal uh, 2018, for example, the Treasury is going to have to raise an additional $450 billion over what it did last year. So that will mean we'll have to raise about $950 billion. So uh, that's going to put some stresses on the bond market, and we're already seeing that.
0: Well, $450 billion, Ward, isn't that sort of the amount that the Federal Reserve is drawing down on its balance sheet?
6: Well, that's part of the part of what the Fed is um, uh, drawing down accounts for this increase in borrowing. But keep in mind, the Treasury also needs to fund uh, the tax cuts that were passed in December, and they also have to fund the increased spending from the budget that was passed, uh, well, I guess early, really early this morning. So it, that's the drawdown on the Fed balance sheet is part of that $450 billion. It's not all of it.
1: Okay. So, Ward, can you clear up something for me a lot of people are saying that if we don't get inflation, yields can't rise that far. Is that a fallacy? Can we see yields rise substantially due to the supply-demand dynamic, regardless of inflation?
6: Well, you can see rates rise. It's always just a question of how much. Uh, we are seeing signs that inflation is going to creep higher. Uh, we've been in a one and a half to two percent inflation range. I think this year we're going to find ourselves. Uh, by the third quarter in a 25 to 3% inflation range. Uh, but the increases in the auction sizes over a period of time, which is what the Treasury is going to do, is going to start to strain the, the um, market's resources. And that alone will result in um, higher rates uh, because higher rates are going to be required to uh, attract the investor bid.
0: Ward, if you were to look into the future, into the world of uh, people perhaps not born or just uh, young adults right now, what do you think the picture looks like in about 10 years?
6: (laughs) Well, I think that we are seeing some important structural changes in the economy that uh, I think will make for uh, a better labor market than we have seen over the past 10 years, even though it has been improving uh, quite substantially. My primary concern is that the U.S. fiscal situation is in the process of deteriorating so much that 10 years from now, uh, it could be a significant impediment uh, to the U.S., Uh, To date, the U.S. has been, uh, you know, profligate on the fiscal side, but we have looked relatively good compared with some of the competitors like, say, Europe, for example. But if Europe continues to get its act together, um, then we are not going to get the free pass that we've had for such a long time here.
1: Ward, uh, where do you expect 10-year yields in the U.S. to be at the end of the year?
6: Well, I think they're going to be higher, you know, trying to figure out exactly how much higher they're going to be is is somewhat difficult to to say. Um, But I think that we'll probably see them up around somewhere between three and a quarter and three and a half percent.
1: Okay. so what's the line in the sand for stocks, for riskier credit? What's what's the level at which people say, you know what, I'm getting paid for for putting my money in cash. I'm getting paid for putting my money in government bonds. I'm not going to be in credit anymore.
6: Well, the, the I think what we'll see is that there'll be more of a differentiation in the type of credit. Uh, high credit should continue to do really well because the economy is doing very well, so that there'll still be appeal, an appeal to the um, uh, the more credit-worthy credit uh, issues. I think that what we might see is that investors start to become a little bit more discerning in the types of credits that they want. Um, because it's the lower credit types of companies that are going to struggle more as the uh, interest rates rise.
0: So, Ward McCarthy, give you about 30 seconds. What kind of credit paper would you not touch right now?
6: <laughs> well, that's really not my area of expertise. Um, I just think that you're better off being in some of the higher graded you know types of issues than the, the lower graded types of issues, and uh, it's really not my place to pick specific issues.
1: You know what's interesting, Pim? I was looking at Teva Pharmaceuticals, which just uh, gave a pretty bleak forecast for the rest of the year, and they have more than $30 billion of debt, and their bond prices are plummeting. They got downgraded to junk, uh, and uh, they're having to really pay up, so they're going to have some, uh, some bonds they've got to refinance this year. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. It's really yeah, and rates are higher. And with the corporate
0: tax overhaul, that means that debt may not be as profitable to issue from corporate issuers. Thank you very much. Ward McCarthy, he is the Chief Financial Economist for Jeffrey. You can subscribe and and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.